Hello, this is Deo Moano. You are joining me today in Persevere to Excel podcast, and I am super excited for the guest I have. And um, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So today I am um, going international. Usually a lot of my topic is more what's happening here uh, in the States where I live. Um, but today I'm going international. And the reason why is we are all globally connected. And when information is shared, we can all get to it by a snap of a finger. And I'm originally from the Congo, in, located in the heart of Africa. And obviously with all the, the different impact of the coronavirus that's impacting the world, I couldn't help but to also look at what's happening in the continent of Africa uh, where I am originally from. And there's been a lot of different things happening and there's certain stuff that came up within the last couple of days that sparked me, that made me want to talk about this issue. So today I have some special, special guests with me, but the topic today is going to be on um, should Africa be a test lab for Western organization and companies regarding vaccines and um, medicine to combat the COVID-19 virus. That's the topic for today. For many, many years, Africa's it's been a very interesting continent. You know, obviously within Africa, there's so many different countries that lies in there. And the outside Western world sometimes kind of group everything as one. And I think a lot of times the challenges that that, that has occurred through colonization and uh, what we've seen in the last couple of years, there's stuff that continues to kind of build on in terms of how the rest of the Western world view Africa and treat Africa. So uh, last week I was sitting there and I got this notification about uh, this discussion that was happening within an interview a French television interview. And there was just two doctors discussing um, uh, kind of the intervention around the virus that's happening currently. And one of the doctors said, oh, I'm going to be provocative. And he insinuated that, hey, don't you think Africa should be the place where we should go and kind of test this medicine out, especially, and he, he even had the audacity to, re to reference um, how doctors use Africa as a test lab during the HIV AIDS pandemic. And he even went as far as saying, you know, there's a lot of prostitutes there that weren't protecting themselves. And um, Africa was, was a perfect place to kind of use that, use it as a test. Shouldn't this be the norm as well as we look at a uh, potential vaccine as trialing in Africa today with COVID-19. And when I watched that interview, my heart was, Oh, I felt so furious. You know, I wasn't surprised, but the bluntness of this discussion happening within the national television, um, it really, really impacted me. And then within the last couple of days, there's been so many different people that have kind of rise up, especially Africans, against this whole notion that Africa is not a test lab. We are not guinea pigs to be tested on. Um, so that's what drove this interview today, where I reached out to my network. I reached out to folks that I knew and I said, hey, I want to discuss this. And um, so with further ado, I want to introduce my guest. Can you please introduce yourself so my listener can can get to know you? Okay, uh, I will start. Uh, my name is uh, Chaganeta Mavunga. I am an associate professor of science, technology, and society uh, 
at MIT with a focus on Africa. I also recently founded a consultancy uh, that uh, specializes in uh, bottom-up uh, empowerment in my own village in Zimbabwe called Research Design Build. And um, I am an author of uh, three books, including the Mobile Workshop, which deals specifically with the this intersection between viral mobilities and human mobilities and the way in which African ideas about science were pretty much the foundations of the Tsetse uh, fly operations of the 1950s onwards. So that's the work I do and I am also focused on innovation in Africa, not from the perspective of people who come in to the continent, but what Africans have done, uh, are doing, and could do in terms of innovating a future saturated with their own version of modernities. So it's, it's good to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I look forward to our discussion. And my next guest, do you want to also introduce yourself? Kwame, are you there? Yeah, hi, hi. So my name is Kwame Edumenu, and I am a data analyst at Vodafone Ghana. I've been in this role for about two years. And also, I have also co-authored three publications on healthcare. So this was work that was done in some rural areas in Ghana. And I developed an algorithm to help estimate um, the stance to healthcare facilities. So this was done um, in one instance, focusing on maternal healthcare. So the objective was basically to understand how the women in these areas were able to easily access health facilities. And I think um, one of them was published in The Lancet and sequel to that, it led to my first presentation at the um, first data science summit that was held in Ghana last year. So basically, that's the work I've done in healthcare. But currently, I work as a data analyst. I deliver analytic solutions for one of the leading technological companies in Ghana, which is Vodafone Ghana. And yes, I'm excited to talk today. I mean, the topic is it's 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 been on on online for a couple of days now, so it's it's an exciting time. And hopefully we have a good discussion around that. It's exciting to hear that Africans are speaking up, you know, and we are not just going to take this just like that. So, yeah, that's it about me. For sure. Thank you so much, Kwame, for being here with me. Um, Shakinatsu, I, I want to start with you. You know, you've been looking at this, um, you know, the different moving parts of kind of African development for so long. And you're originally from Zimbabwe, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And I would love to just, do, you know, are you surprised by what you're seeing in mainstream regarding how Africa is being perceived right now as um, based on how this COVID-19 is impacting everybody? Not at all. I'm not surprised. I'm shocked that we are surprised. Um, black people have been uh, lab rats for the past 500 years. They were <laughs> lab rats on the plantations. And when the plantation was no longer profitable, they switched to create a vast plantation in Africa, um, Europe, that is. 
which they now called colonies. So that's a vast reservoir of, uh, uh, you know, experimentation. Anything that was risky in Europe was taken to Africa to find out if it works. Um, if it works, it works. If it's dangerous, it doesn't kill uh, white people. That's the reality of colonialism. Um, you may remember that uh, experiments in the United States were conducted on uh, uh, black people at Tuskegee. They were not treated uh, at all uh, against syphilis to find out what the effect would be in 19... And this is not just a small experiment. It was a 40-year experiment, 1932 to 1972. In Guatemala, uh, a different kind of experiment uh, involving syphilis again in 1946 to 1948, where soldiers, prisoners, prostitutes, and mental patients were deliberately infected with syphilis to determine the effects of specific drugs. In the 1960s, prophylactic settlements, this is my, I discussed this in my latest book, The Mobile Workshop, European governments in Africa deliberately settled Africans in areas that were prone to uh, some of the worst diseases, including uh, trypanosomiasis, so that they would act as a barrier uh, to uh, any infiltration by tsetsefly on uh, European settlements. In the 1970s, uh, Bob Symington's uh, experiments in Rhodesia to determine what kind of substances could weaken or reduce uh, the threat of uh, Africans supporting a, a liberation um, movements and guerrillas uh, and the guerrillas themselves. In the 1980s, you have Project Coast in South Africa uh, where the apartheid regime uh, went on a, an experiment uh, to sterilize black people through vaccines led by Walter Basson. We could go on and on and on. The fact is that those that think that Africans are crazy to suspect anything um, must really look at this record and see Africans is now waking up to these issues in the age of uh, the internet, where news travels fast, where people research and share ideas those that are in places where they are able to know this stuff, being able to very quickly alert uh, their colleagues who are not in positions of research. So it, the issue is not so much that uh, we are not liberates. For me, the question is how do we stop it? And who is to blame? And what is to be done? So that's where I'm coming from. And I'm with Demba Ba on this, when he says that it's time to rise. The question is, how do we do this, given the uh, kinds of uh, uh, tools that we have today? And I'm glad that my colleague Kwame is here. Perhaps we could begin to initiate a conversation. I'm tired of a conversation that simply focuses on mourning about it and criticizing I'm much more interested in a more proactive conversation on how do we structure and uh, forge our own future um, saturated with opportunity. 
No, thank you so much for expanding on that. And we are going to talk about solution. And and for me, the big thing it's been about empowerment. You know, how do we take ownership um, based on what our skill sets are, what our talent is, and also what our, our you know our, our sovereignty as as an independent um, citizen of this world without allowing um, other folks to kind of decide what our future is going to be. I do want to touch on certain things that you've mentioned. You know, the the ability of technology to be able to provide information to people all over at real time has completely shifted how some of this stuff happens. Where in the past, things like this could happen, you know, at, at, at a secrecy or no one would know and automatically you know, you know, we'll, we'll experience it later down the road when research comes out to say, oh, this is what happens where today it's like at real time. You know, something interesting I saw this week, I was watching this video um, in Kinshasa where and I'm not sure how true it is or not. But this this person was recording a group of people that were being put into um, a, like a truck. And he was saying he, he was saying in Lingala, he said, oh, Tala. Meaning, hey, look at them, man. They're picking them up for the vaccine. And then he says, the thing that was the funniest thing that he said, which is funny, but it's also sad. He goes, You know, what he said is they gave they gave their life for only $20. And then he he continues by saying, So he says, I'm going to see how they're going to be after one week. And I'm watching this and it, it just hits me in the heart. And I'm like, wow, man, like, you know, here's this is happening already. And the fact that I'm yeah. here miles, thousands and thousands of miles away in America, I'm able to see this video almost at real time when this person uploaded it. But you come from Congo, right? You do know that this is exactly a throwback to the time when uh, the worst human trypanosomiasis epidemic broke out in the 50s and 60s. Yep. And the fear among people was that people were being taken away to be to have their blood taken. And people never knew what was happening with that blood and they always thought that this is a, these are vampires. Louis White talks about this in 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 speaking like a vampire. And, and, and the same kind of trend where you have uh, African blood being taken and vaccines being developed in Britain at that time and in Belgium and France is the same. And then you have those vaccines coming back to be trialed out on people. It's the same script. Nothing really has changed. Yeah, which, which, which is the unfortunate part. And, 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 and what you were saying earlier in terms of the solution, there, there's definitely an opportunity. Kwame, I, I do want to get you on this for a second. So, by the way, this is for my listeners. Um, I, I've never worked with Kwame before, um, and this is the power of technology. I'm sitting there on LinkedIn. I get a lot of notification around different stuff, technology, innovation that's happening in Africa. So I follow a lot of those trends. And I see this post that comes up in my newsfeed that shows... Um, Kwame posted about this uh, dashboard, this data, real-time dashboard that he created tracking um, cases, COVID-19 cases throughout Africa. And he makes this comparison around, um, you know, what the, the, the Chinese government were able to show in terms of how they track theirs. And he said, you know, I've, I've developed similar um, solutions that I've been using for many years and look how I'm tracking what's happening in Africa right now. So I saw that and I was like, oh my goodness, this is awesome. You know, it's so great to see that we have, you know, there's plenty of 
people in Africa doing so many different things and people just don't know. And for him to be able to create this real, real time dashboard. So I reached out to him first. I commented and, and I said, man, this is really cool, man. Keep up the great work. And then I thought, man, I would love to have him come on, on my, on my podcast to discuss, you know, why did he feel this was important and how, how are things happening on the ground? So Kwame, I would love to kind of hear your, your, your response of what led for you to create this um, data dashboard that you're using. Amazing. Thank you. So um, basically, um, it started with um, when we recorded our first case of the virus in Ghana, right? So um, I was just trying to find information on like how many cases have we reported, how many tests. Like there was nothing, absolutely nothing about it. So then I just decided to, you know, research into, you know, existing dashboards or something. And that's when I came across the John Hopkins dashboard. And my first thought was, I could have easily done this in like five minutes because I've done similar things in the past, right? And now I'm thinking, how come I can't find any information on the, the virus in general in my country? So then later on, I heard the Ministry of Health had, you know, created a website to focus on COVID-19. And everything was just text, right? So I had to read a paragraph to come up with maybe the total number of cases and all that. So then I just decided, I mean, this is something I can easily do. Now, if you look at the John Hopkins dashboard, it is an ArcGIS operations dashboard. So that means you need to have a premium account to be able to do that. But then here's the case. I have Tableau. Tableau, there's a free desktop version. And in Tableau, Tableau supports creating of dashboards. It supports creating of maps. So I just got to work uploading all the data sources I uploaded in my spatial data. And then one other thing I did was to do um, scraping of data from online sources, right? So I got two of the reliable sources, WHO and Worldometer. So what I simply did was use Excel, which, which is also a free software version. My focus was to do this without having to pay anything, just to show people that there are lots of opportunities out there. So I just wrote a simple macro to scrape the data of the site. So in that case, I don't need to manually update it. And then I connected that to my Tableau workbook. And it just happened, right? So I just conceptualized it. How do I visualize this in the best possible way? And I mean, for data analysis, when we are doing visualization, like there are some things that we need to really consider, right? So all the information should be available in one look, one glance. Once I look at it, I should be able to see everything that is important. So when you check my dashboard, I have two sections, right? I decided to focus on the world and then down to Africa and then focus on Ghana. So on the world, you can see the total cases, the recoveries and the deaths, right? And then everything happens in space. So I was able to map all of that. And one other thing about dashboards is they have to be interactive. Right. So once you click on any country, you're able to see information specific to that country. And then I created a separate dashboard just to focus on my country, Ghana, right? So this has a lot more information. This has all the cases updating in real time. This also has all the key contacts that Ghanaians can reach out to. So it has all the numbers from the health service. If you, are, if you have an emergency, 
you can reach out. And then the cases per regions. I also provided the recoveries, how many people are doing well, how many people are critically ill and all that. And I might say, when I posted this on Twitter the first time, the support was, I got was amazing. I mean, I didn't expect so many people to to reach out and say, this is amazing because anytime they go to the government website, they need to literally read a whole paragraph wow. and then siphon out all the data they need. And sometimes they don't find it, right? right. And I think the government updates it, um, I think every six hours or so. So you might, there were so many rumors that, oh, we've reached this number of cases. Where do I get this information? You go to the site and they tell you last update was maybe 8 a.m. today. But this is a case where you need the information now so that you can, you know, squash some of the fake news going around. And there was a lot of that, you know, people coming up with their own numbers. 10 people have died, 20 people have died and all that. So they visited my dashboard. They were able to see everything in one glance. And I told them where the source is, which is obviously Worldometer and WHO, right? And this was me also trying to get a contact from the Ministry of Health. So then in case there's anything, they could just update me and I provide that. But I mean, that is another conversation. Right, right. That, yeah. So, I mean, it's, the support has been amazing. And that has pushed me to keep maintaining it. If you realize, I keep adding new features to it. Yeah, I've been checking. I've been checking it. it every couple of hours. I check it, and I do click on Congo to see how things are going there and other places as well. So that that that's amazing, man. That, I'm so glad that you were able to. And and you do this on your own, right? This wasn't like a work project. This was just you saw that there was a need, and you said, "Hey, I I can build something similar to what other people are doing in their other countries." And um and now you have this tool. What, what what's your goal for this tool? Yeah. So yes. Um. I mean, I slept for at 3 a.m. for like three days straight developing this. And I was able to do that because, I mean, I was passionate about it. I, I really wanted to get it out there, right? So my goal was to get people to be able to access information easily. That was my key point. It should be easy to access the information. Whatever you want to see, it should be easy to see it. And it should be available every single time, right? And I mean, that is what motivated me to to get this out there. And then the other key thing was to be able to highlight all the very key details in there. I mean, I see many other dashboards that pump in a lot of stuff, right? There's not everything that we need to get in there. It's basically, you know, like total cases. That's something that everybody will want to know. How many people are dying? That is something everybody wants to know. And the recoveries are also very, very key. Right. And one other thing I wanted to do was to be able to collaborate with, you know, the government here to be able to push this to them so that they can also push it out there. Because once we have a wider reach, people are able to access the information more. So I amaze you to know I can step out right now and ask people about the number of cases now. And most people would be lost, wouldn't know how many cases we have and they wouldn't even know where to go to to get that information. Wow. I want to get um, Shakunas doing this real quick. W I'm curious to know from, you know, you were talking about solution earlier. Uh, what do you think of what um, Kwame has been able to create and build? It's, it's, it's amazing work, um, but it needs to be, um, I think in Africa we, and I'm not just speaking about Kwame, um, 
one of the challenges, some of us have been involved in trying to create apps for how you triage quickly, um, how you self-triage uh, and coordinate um, a vast infrastructure of uh, healthcare during COVID. Um, I've been collaborating with uh, a very um, a large team of engineers um, headed by a friend of mine, David Sitole, who is... Uh, we had crew, crew technologies. And what we have found out is that the problems that affect Ghana are not very different from the problems that affect Kenya or Zimbabwe or Rwanda. Um, the challenge with the Africans always is that we, we always work in silos. Um, we, I think Aikwe Ama said it most, that we have to have a kind of Africa-wide think uh, thinking, um, which is not in, in national, nationally bounded, um, so that we don't descend into the same colonial mindset of uh, uh, parochialism. Because our solutions, once we find solutions in Ghana, there is no reason why we, sh we should continue to replicate that. The fact that we, 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 we are still having such a struggle trying to rely on a, a, the state figures for coronavirus um, when there is only one testing center in places, countries like Zimbabwe for a population of a, a 14 million uh, means that you know the kinds of things that Kwame is talking about uh, has not reached there right and so part of the way of doing this is to uh, Africans need to collaborate we, 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 we work in small silos it's important that we reach out and uh, establish platforms that can enable us to do that. No, That doesn't mean that we have to belong to one organization. It simply means that if I am, say, a data scientist, um, and I need to uh, apply the kind of, say, a, a tool that I have developed to real life, to solve a real life situation that is, say, hard infrastructural. Um, we don't have to go back to, to engineering school to train to be engineers at all. We simply need to partner with engineers that know that stuff. And if I am an African who is a Zimbabwean and I want to have projects that are Africa-wide, I don't have to have an encyclopedia to learn all about the whole of Africa uh, on the fly. I just need to collaborate with people that are in those uh, places. That's the challenge. The question for us is not that Africans can't innovate. We have got the best in many organizations. In fact, the reason why uh, companies are able to make money in Africa at all is because they are relying on our talents there. Otherwise, they don't know too much about our continent. That's very true. No, one of the thing that you, you spoke about that I want to come back to is that collaboration effort. And that goes back to kind of the topic of, of this, um, this podcast today, which is, you know, should we rely on Western power to, to be able to dictate how we, um, you know, how the Af African continent as a whole kind of overcomes COVID-19. And the biggest thing that you, you said was that collaboration and that collaboration is so important because that's what, you know, that that's what will make us resourceful to be able to, 
unite and rely on one another and 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 utilize all the talent and gifts that's that are there and i think that's something that's you know that's always missed is the fact that a lot of the organizations that are working in africa are leveraging african talent african power you know i was involved with an education program in rwanda that's now scaled all over africa called kepler university with a local university (laughs) here and um and I was so blown away. One of the things that happened early on when the program was being put together, I I was getting to know the team on the ground very well. The team on the ground were our partners. And I told my colleagues here in America, and I said, listen, if this works, this is going to be a game changer for the students. Mind you, the students are 18, 19, 20-year-olds that have to take an, a test in order to qualify to be in here, where our students here in the States are blue-collar Americans coming from employer partners um, where they have other stuff in their life. If this work, it's going to be crazy. And the first pilot, we had 50 students out of 2,500 applicants that the partner on the ground decided to select 50 students. And the first the first three months, it was a little bit slow. Students were uh, were submitting like one project a month. And then come month four, five, and six, the students just started up submitting their project. And the students got into a faster pace than any other partners that we were working with in the States. And before you knew it, we had one graduate, two graduate. Within the first, the first year and a half, we had 25 graduates with associate degree and about five to 10 with their bachelor degree. And, and then what, one of the other things that happened was the students became the hot commodity because the the way that they were learning critical thinking and the way that their their entrepreneurial skills and their creative the creativity that they were able to tap in, and most of the students that I worked with early on, they got hired by all the different NGOs, all the different startups, and some of them started their own company. And I remember, you know, I was like, man, I want to go back home. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I want to yeah. go back home. This is this is amazing. And today, the program has had over. 400 graduates there's about 700 students from all over the world that all over africa that are part of this program now through um, kepler university and southern new hampshire university partnership and so to me i'm i am i know for sure that you know with collaboration and 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 utilizing resources that we all have um you know the issues the problems that africa as a whole faces it could be 100 percent solved but the problem yeah. is when the Western power kind of dangles their resources at us, it's a lot easier for people to kind of, you know, not fully work together. And, you know, they rely on the autonomy. One thing that was interesting this this past weekend was South African minister made made an announcement saying that he's welcoming Western power to support them in defeating COVID-19. And yeah. in the same yeah. sentence, he mentioned you know, we have great relationship with the Russian government. And then at the same sentence, he says, yeah, we're definitely open to the Gates Foundation to come and help us. But then right. the- and that is the problem. <laughs> you see, here's where, where, what Africa is not aware of. Every time we invite people from outside to solve our problems, we are losing money. Not money in terms of how much they invest and take away, but opportunities. Because companies go thrive because there is a problem to be solved. You don't thrive if you if you no longer solve a problem. 
as an institution, you your products become redundant. And here we are just giving away our problems. Let's take the virus, not just COVID, but HIV and other uh, viruses, for example. What is at stake here is the reason why these guys, these companies come in, these outsiders come in, is to harvest useful genetic samples without paying a penny. And with that, those samples, they, ha they develop drugs, right, or vaccines. When they have, and this is what they did with Ebola, vast caches of uh, the uh, Ebola uh, samples went out during that outbreak. And I have not heard of any vaccine that was developed in Africa for Ebola. The companies that are doing that are the big companies overseas. We allow them. It's not their fault. We allow them. These backroom deals, our leaders strike with this without any forward-thinking young people who will be present. We allowed them, right? And so... So they go, this is not, it's a double whammy, maybe a triple whammy. Yep. They take the sample, they go away, they make the vaccine there. And then they come in to do the clinical trials back on you. Yep. Because we are stupid. We allow them. They come and do the experiment. We even welcome them. This, there was, this guy was bragging. Oh, we are going to be candidates for the vaccine. And he was gloating about it. Mm. So they will experiment on us, the clinical trial, right? Yep. And then they go away. They develop the drug. Then if we are lucky, they will sell, us, sell it back to us at a cost. Yep. Or they'll go to the larger NGOs who are willing to give them millions and millions and millions of dollars to fund yeah. um, them delivering the same medicine that they, they were able to trial for free by testing it on people. <laughs> in 2007, Indonesia refused to share H5N1 avian flu samples. Why did they do this? Because their point was, you guys are going to make money with this material. It's not, this is our vaccine. We own it by, by virtue of being the one who carry it and who host it. We are not going to give you our vaccine because they are going to develop a vaccine which we can't afford. Right. Why yeah. can't we afford it? Because the rich company, the rich countries of the world have already placed big advance orders on this. Uh on these vaccines, we can't afford them. So at best, we are going to be given small, petty little amounts of the profits, but the more global and severe the virus, the bigger the money for the pharmaceutical companies that get the vaccine first. No, that's very so, true. Granted, it's an ex you know, a vaccine development is a very expensive process and they need to at least recoup the expenses. But why at Africa's expense? At the same time, we have, so when you see the backlash by Africans now, 
I don't think we have begged in that angle that these viruses, they are money. Yes, they will kill people, our people, but they are money. Now, they come in with all these good stories. Oh, we are going to solve the problem for you. Many Africans are going to die. Why are you so concerned about Africa? Because there is money. Now, I have no problem with them making money. If only one, they would admit that. that that's what is at stake here. They want right. to make the money. Being truthful. A business conversation. Right. Not just a medical one where they are philanthropists. It's the naivety of our leadership that shocks me most. Yeah, I think that's that's one thing I wanted to chat touch on, right? So it seems our leaders are not seeing things the way you're seeing now. Because it seems amazing that they seem to miss all these points. And like you mentioned, some people were boasting about being, you know, subjects for for these trials it's like they don't see it at all and it's, it's a major issue for me if the people that are leading us are not seeing things this way then it means yeah. <laughs> you don't expect the citizen to be able to do any better our leadership is, is, is a major problem for us in africa nobody's asking right now dio what are the chinese doctors doing for a country with per capita possibly the highest educated population in africa with so many doctors in nigeria, nigeria. right <laughs> yeah putting their stuff on the tarmac what are they doing there i think they arrived yesterday right yeah they arrived, they arrived yesterday. yesterday what are they doing who called them why the nigerian professionals themselves if you ask them they'll tell you we had the capacity to handle this. They did not badly against Ebola, which is the untold story. The role of African creative resilience in these pandemics. All we hear are these stories of saviors from outside coming to liberate us from a virus. What are our own people doing? That's the story. And then you get this and you wonder why it is that uh, uh, these foreigners are coming to, uh, to, to help, quote-unquote, or help Africa. It's because we allow them. Our governments allow them. Yeah, it's open door. And, and that was the fascinating thing about the issue in Nigeria. And, you know, I, you know, the Medical Association completely denied it. They said, no, we don't, we don't want them to come here. We are, we're solving it. We're figuring out what it is. We give us the tools, give us the support instead of bringing the Chinese doctors and, and yeah. the government already, they already opened the door. <laughs> they already opened the door. They couldn't even rebuttal. They couldn't even come back and say, all right, we, let's honor our um, association of medicine based on their recommendation. Nope. No. It, and, and that's the thing. And I think we're, we're in a very interesting chasm in terms of, you know, the, the grassroots advocacy movement around independency and autonomy. And, and I hope this is an opportunity for people to be able to start, you know, really, really voicing their, 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 their raising their voices. And those who have the knowledge all over the world that are African to be able to come together around this because, you know, this is where the critical moment is in terms of how do we, 
you know, represent ourselves as we move forward. You know, that's the critical, that's the critical part in this. And I agree with you, what you're saying, that it's less about, you know, crying and complaining and, oh, look at what they've done to us. It's more about how do we mobilize? How do we take this back? And then it's coming along our government, you know, the government, the government representation in those different African countries coming alongside their citizen, you know, instead of just being so quick to just say yes to some of these entities. But do they have a choice? I mean, if you look at, I was looking at another story that broke uh, in West Africa on uh, uh, the Pasteur Institute in Dakar. Uh, you know, making this, uh, developing this uh, 10 minute test kit. I was giddy about it until I learned that much of the money is coming from uh, the United Kingdom and other partners outside. And it remind me, reminded me of a similar story between that is existing in, in, in Kenya, for example. Uh, where the Welcome Institute is, is a very particular interest in uh, what the, the, the you know uh, the Camry is doing, their labs there. Right. It's the same situation with the first friend of mine did research on on this uh, for her PhD. It's the same situation with Institute that the early generation of post-independent Kenyan scientists established labs to treat, to not only to treat malaria, but to develop cures that are aligned and tapped into, you know, indigenously generated knowledge and diffused it with Western knowledge systems to produce a, a more sustainable brand of, uh, of, 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 uh, of uh, a therapeutic and prophylactic. But the story of it is that the big uh, institutes of health in the global north come in and scoop and take over. So what you have is a systematic takeover or, you know, through funding. Mostly it happens through funding. It's, the, the, you know, the same thing with ISIPE in Kenya, uh, you know, for insect, insect parasitology and, 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 and physiology. It, the same thing. So they, they take over these institutions and at that point, the priorities shift. The priorities are no longer African health priorities. The priorities are now priorities to feed data to these big Western institutions. At whose cost? At Africa's cost. And now I, I, I would be happy if uh, this medicine was going to be of much benefit to poor black communities in the United States until you realize that 70% of the cases that are expressing in Chicago are black people. Yeah, that's that's another story right there. You know, that's, <laughs> you know, that's that's yeah. the other issue. You know, it's, so it's outrageous that we have institutions in Africa that are purporting to be African inventors. It turns out they are not. If you look at even if you look at the tech scene in Nairobi, it's the same thing. Yep, it's simple value money, most of it. So when we hear happy stories about Africa, I'm very cautious about, you know, whose money is this? I'm a Zimbabwean and I'm very realistic. When a country decides to take decisive action uh, to resolve these issues, quickly the capital flows out. The, it's, these things are de-invested and before you know it, those uh, 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 labs run down. 
those companies run down. So ground zero starts with us really thinking seriously about the sustainability of our institutions. Any institution in Africa that needs to produce usable science for Africans by Africans must be self-sustaining. And I would submit to you that currently we are living on borrowed money. Everything that we have to do with the health sector and, and issues of science, nobody can say that this is completely self-funded because it's not. So how do, you, how do you have independence of research then? And you wonder why our best scientists end up overseas? And you wonder why we can't even uh, make use of those scientists even as they are in the diaspora? Perhaps this is the stage where telemedicine might be a way of actually involving that diaspora back home. The key for me lies in the diaspora being able to be effective either from where they are or because of where they are, rather than simply thinking that at one point they'll come back home. That's the challenge for us. Wow. I want, I want to bring in Kwame here in real quick. Kwame, so what, what, what's happening on the ground? What are you hearing from your friends, colleagues, your community um, regarding you know, how, how they feel about everything that's happening? Yeah, I think um, just to touch on the earlier point about human resource um, getting stuck in the diaspora, I think one of the things that happens is, you know, most of the time our government grants scholarships to students, you know, to go study abroad. And for a while now, I've been wondering what the ultimate goal is for these scholarships, because what normally happens is some of these bright students get out there and then they never come back. Mm. So then I wonder, are there any structures in place to ensure that once these guys are done with school, they come back and, you know, make some sort of impact? Is there a long-term goal for our scholarship schemes, you know? So is it that this year we want to send out maybe engineers to school and do these kind of programs? And once you're done, we want to bring them back and focus their talent into maybe developing something. Like recently, Rwanda is now producing mobile phones, right? Mm. I'm just hoping that it's not being led by, you know, maybe a foreign company or some <laughs> white guy. I'm seriously hoping that it's something that's been done by the local guys. So, I mean, that's one thing that I've been wondering about for, you know, a while now. How can we ensure that once we develop talent, we're able to get them back here and then focus their efforts in specific areas. Because, for example, if in the Ministry of Health we had sent somebody out to do data science, data analysis or something, I don't think we would have come out with that website in the first place. I'm sure that person would have, in the first place, informed the heads that we should go with this kind of dashboard, this kind of informational way of informing guys, not, you know, the text kind of website. So, I mean, that is something that uh, I'm hoping that it would change. And talking about independence, right? So, you know, when you take loans from other countries, there's no way you'll be independent because yeah. then you owe them and then you end up have to do things that you initially wouldn't have done with the money. I think that's one of the reasons that informed our current president's decision to go Ghana beyond aid. 
right? So what are some of the things that we can do internally? And I think it's amazing that he's trying to focus on building, you know, local manufacturing industries, right? So that's why we have the one district, one factory. So in every district, we should have one factory doing something, producing something. Is it that you are producing, you are transferring raw materials into process ones that we can export? Or you are making cars or something, something of that sort, right? So, I mean, it's... It's imperative that most of our governments in Africa have that kind of mindset. But unfortunately, I mean, it's not every country that is there yet. Some of right. us are still looking to the next loan, how we can get the next loan to be able to do whatever, how we pay back. I mean, <laughs> that's another story. We'll leave it for the next government to to worry about. No, for sure. Well, I just want to say, um, I'm, I'm going to leave this this next um, as we finish up here, kind of what, what is your hope and where do you see the opportunity and what can we do now in order to, um, to, to, to take ownership, you know, to take ownership and um, be able to have our own way of how we move, you know, the, the continent forward as, as citizens of, of, of Africa, you know, that are living in Africa, but, or the ones that are living outside of Africa, like, um, Doctor and I. Uh, so, one of my my heroes is I have two actually, uh, Amilcar Cabral, who once reminded us to tell no lies, claim no easy victories. Mm. Um, I think we need to reflect on the meaning of independence if um, we are still having. Uh, you know, sewage uh, filled streets. If we are still relying completely on uh, drugs made in India or China or outside, if and on every uh, occasion of crisis, the first thing that we hear our governments, uh, the first sound is the a, a wail for help that does not appear like independence to me on a lighter note and a happier note because i'm an optimist and i'm a, i identify myself as a critical thinker who does things having realized that africa is caught between uh critical thinkers who just talk and do nothing they love to criticize but while sitting in their chair or exercising their hands on twitter not realizing that those hands, as long as they are on the Twitter handle, they are not doing the necessary work that Africa requires. At the same time, Africa also has doers who are not really, who don't think critically. And the challenge then is how to fuse these two. Um, Thomas Sankara once said famously, we must dare to invent the future. Um, and I would urge every young person to really read Thomas Sankara because we need Sankaras in our time where we, the, the dream should never be lost of knowing that we, the, our capacity to be free and to be healthy and to be alive uh, rests on our minds and in our hearts and in our own hands. 
Uh, we have the tools now. I think uh, Kwame's story about uh, the tool that he has, uh, the dashboard that he's talking about, uh, is an illustration that young people in Africa are not going to wait until the politics is right, because that may even take beyond our own lifetimes. Right. And the challenge is that if the politics is not right, are we going to wait until we are in our graves before uh, innovation happens? I am an optimist. I grew up in very difficult uh, wartime circumstances. And one thing I know with Africans is that um, their spirit of creative res resilience, that even when their back is against the wall, when death is certain, they don't just roll over and die. They die fighting. Mm. And I have a lot of confidence in what young people are doing at this moment, busy mobilizing to conscientize people on what to do, what not to do during COVID. Uh, you know, you know, putting their university education uh, into practice, even when our own university system does not do that at all. It's too theoretical. As a learning moment, I think COVID illustrates how utterly useless our education system in Africa, by and large, with a few exceptions, has been. It is not a problem-solving knowledge. It should be. Everything we do must, be, must turn every problem into an opportunity. That's the kind of syllabus we need. Right now, we are still epping the syllabi of the West, and as long as we are doing that, we are not going to realize why we are going to school, why we should spend significant taxpayers' money to get people to school if they cannot solve anything, if all we do is to rely on outsiders to help our biggest problems. Well, thank you. And tell me that I, I think we can do better, much better. Thank you so much for sharing that. And that was very powerful. And Kwame. What, what 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 what's your thought? What's your closing thoughts? Yeah, I think um, it's, it's really important that we give you know young people the room to innovate and also you know try and encourage and build up young people as well. Um, if if you come to Ghana, for instance, there has been a couple of innovations by young people, and I think it will amaze you some of the things that people are doing. I think in one instance, they, there was a couple of students in high school who created um, an electronic hand washing machine using local stuff. You know, and I think when I saw it on social media, I was like, this is really amazing. And my next thought was, where would this end up at? And to be honest, I was really excited when in the last address to the nation, the president actually acknowledged these students he mentioned them by name. That's awesome. And then he he clearly stated what they had done and how it will be used. And I mean, when I heard that, I was for the rest of the address, I mean, I was just blown away because this is just amazing. Imagine what it would do for the confidence of these guys. I mean, from then onwards, they will just continue to innovate because the president actually mentioned their name. And it's going to inspire other people as well. I mean, we are all in high school. If three students have done this, what else can the others do, right? So I think we need more of this. We need our leaders recognizing what 
the young people are doing. We need, a, we need them to acknowledge and push them as far as they can. And I think once we have more of this, nothing will stop our, our, our young guys from continuing to innovate. Wow, we could have gone for another two hours. <laughs> I just want to say thank you guys so much for being able to join Persevere to Excel podcast today and the rich conversation we had regarding um, empowerment, resource, identity, taking ownership, being resourceful. And as we move forward, um, you know, on, on my podcast, that's what I care about. I, I, I want people to be able to hear stories and perspectives that are that are authentic to individuals experiences. And as we are all coping with this negative impact of the coronavirus, um, I hope everybody are finding a way to to be able to find that space to, to stay grounded. And in the conversation today, we talked about the continent of Africa and the citizens of Africa and opportunities for them to be able to take ownership and not allow um, outside power to to dictate what happens and i want to thank my guests again thank you so much guys for joining me today and um, hopefully we'll get on a call again sometime soon and kwame keep up the great work um, in ghana thank you thank you very much You have once again